This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's episode is going to focus on one of the core questions of democracy, a question we revisit, it seems, with every generation, which is the role of equality and the role of efforts to limit unfair and excessive allocations of resources and concentrations of those resources. What is the role of our democracy in preserving equality, limiting oligarchy, and ensuring opportunity for citizens. And in particular for today's discussion, what is the role of the politics of law? And by the politics of law, we mean the discussions, the debates over the meaning of law. How do those debates overlap with our questions of economic justice, equality, opportunity, and anti-oligarchy? Uh, We're joined today by two uh, distinguished scholars and public intellectuals who have written an absolutely fantastic book. It's a very thick book. It was a little heavy for me to carry it on the plane where I was uh, reading it uh, this weekend, but it's a a wonderful book uh, that really addresses these questions in an innovative, thoughtful, rigorous, and um, really quite persuasive way. Um, The title of the book is The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, a wonderful title, and the authors are Joseph Fishkin and Willie Forbath. Uh, Joseph Fishkin is a professor of law at UCLA, where he teaches and writes about employment, discrimination law, election law, constitutional law, education law, fair housing law, poverty and inequality, and distributive justice. Uh, So, Joey, you don't really cover much at all. You're pretty narrow, aren't you? (laughs) Before joining the UCLA faculty, he taught at the University of Texas School of Law here in Austin, and he's the author of numerous articles and other books, including Bottlenecks, A New Theory of Equal Opportunity, uh, which won a number of book awards. Uh, The second author and our our additional guest is Willie Forbath. Uh, He holds the Lloyd Benson Chair uh, at the UT Law School, and he's also the Associate Dean of Research at the UT Law School. Uh, He's a distinguished uh, historian of labor and law and related topics. He's the author of Law and the Shaping of the American Labor Movement, uh, which is a a book that influenced me quite a lot when I read it years ago. Um, He is, of course, a co-author of this new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. He's written dozens of articles book chapters. And he's completing another book that we'll have him on to talk about in the future, a book that is uh, is as interesting as this one on transnational uh, Jewish lawyers and the politics of the 19th and 20th century. Willie has taught at UCLA, Sciences Po in Paris, Tel Aviv University, Columbia, and Harvard. So uh, Joey and Willie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Happy to be here. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with the two distinguished authors, we have, of course, our distinguished young poet, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri. What is the title of your poem this week, Zachary? Of Oligarchs and Idealists. Okay, this is not about uh, family discussions, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> when we sit down and write our constitutions, maybe in the side room of a city hall or in a dining room overlooking the sea. What passes between us? What do the handshakes mean? Is each one the acknowledgement of personhood, each glance across the room at the man from the south or the farmer dreaming of the hay at the bottom of his ox cart? Is each glance the beginning of a nation? 
When they sit down and write our constitutions, one realizes that they are bored and restless, that their idealism is just a cover for the old pathologies, just a band-aid over the old disputes, the old feuds, the wells sucking rivers dry before they can reach the fields downstream. When they sit down and write our constitutions, we want to think of them somehow as gods, sitting there with a singular purpose, spinning gold out of stale air, pulling something valuable out of the quill so that it could sing a thousand years later, our chorus, singing our ghosts back into oblivion. But these are our ghosts. When we sit down and write our constitutions, they are not written for the next millennium, They are not even meant to survive a decade. We just sit down and look up and look around and write then of the only principle in a room of oligarchs and idealists, equality. I love that finale there, Zachary. What is your poem about? Well, my poem really arose out of me trying to to make sense of the title of this book, right? It seems it seems very hard to believe that 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 a group of oligarchs and 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 idealists could come up with a document that that is so radical. And I think part of the point of the poem is just that those contradictions are there and and are so are so prominent, but sometimes we're, we're too afraid to see them and, yeah. and wrestle with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Uh, Joey, I thought I'd uh, ask you the the natural question that follows from Zachary's poem. Uh, How is it that uh, our constitutional politics, in in your analysis and and Willie's, how is it that we have this alternative tradition you're pointing to? You call it a democracy as opportunity tradition, not the conservative tradition I think we associate with slaveholding and wealthy landed elites writing a document uh, to unify the, the colonies. You see a democracy as opportunity, a, a more radical uh, tradition. How, how does one understand that? So the story that we're telling in this book is not necessarily um, with, with you know, respect to that, to that really interesting and great poem at the, at the beginning. It's not necessarily a story of this is there in the Constitution as the dominant force at the very start. We're not saying the founders all believed in the tradition we're sketching. But some of them did, especially people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, who began to articulate some ideas that would be later taken up by future generations of increasingly uh, radical interpreters of our original document. And really, by the time you get to, uh, to Reconstruction in particular, you have the materials to pull together uh, a constitutional story that embraces uh, a set of principles that we think are worth salvaging and, and digging up today that our book is uh, is about. Great. And, and uh, Willie, these principles, as, as you describe them early on in the book and then carry the thread forward, it, it seems that there's a trinity of them, right? They involve anti-corruption protections for the middle class and opening new opportunities. Can you say more about what these principles are and how we should understand them? Absolutely. So the first two um, were really there from the beginning. The third was only on the fringes, a recessive element in the political conversations at the founding. So the first two are anti-oligarchy. 
um, the principle that the Constitution requires us, both its texts and principles and provisions, and also sustaining it over time, requires us to restrain oligarchy, to take measures to right, prevent excessive concentrations of wealth and economic power. Right? What the right, Jeffersonians called prevent a moneyed aristocracy. Right. Um, the second principle is take measures to to preserve a broad, wide open middle class, a middle class that's open right, and wide enough to accommodate everybody. But of course, who is included in everybody changed over time. And for even the sort of most radical Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, by and large, everybody meant every white guy. Um, abolitionism always existed from the founding onward, so there was always a, a handful and then a growing number who expanded that to really honor the third principle, which is inclusion, inclusion of groups hitherto excluded, racial groups, somewhat later, but really overlapping, you know, groups isolated by sex and gender. But inclusion is the third principle. And all throughout the 19th and early 20th century, plenty of proponents of the first two principles, right, scorned the third one and others not. And we tell that story and we carry it through to the present. And you make a very strong argument that we have to think in terms of the intersection between the politics and the economics of these principles. You say repeatedly that this is a story of political economy, and you're critical, it seems to me in my reading, of those who either want to just focus on the politics or want to just focus on the economics. Uh, Joey, how should we understand the concept of political economy as you're, as you're articulating it throughout the book? Yeah, political economy is an old phrase, but lately you may be hearing it uh, around because it's coming back into use. When you had uh, people in the 18th, 19th century uh, who studied many of the subjects we now think of as economic, like who has more or less money, what are the wages, what are the rents, who, how do we divide the spoils of, of our you know, bountiful society among different people, uh, and what are, how do the prices end up shaking out? All that stuff was part of the same conversation as a set of conversations about political power and authority. And so the phrase political economy was kind of the old economics. Today, uh, we're living in a long period through the 20th century, the rise of economics left us with a more uh, rigorous in some ways, more scientific, uh, at least that's what its proponents argued, um, view of, of economic matters, but one that was also a little more um, hived off from thinking about questions of politics and some of the questions of distribution that were always at the center of what political economists a uh, hundred years ago and more cared about. And so today, as we recognize uh, increasingly, again, we're living through kind of another gilded age, and we can see that we have some problems with the way that 
politics and economics interact and the way that wealthy interests have a lot of political sway and may be able to block things that most ordinary people would benefit from politically and economically, it becomes very useful to kind of revive this idea again of political economy, which is just simple idea that politics and economics are mutually interdependent and constitutive, that you don't have one ever kind of going along totally independent of the other. And Willie, this seems to uh, echo a lot of your work as well. Uh, I think many people, if they read the New York Times on a day-to-day basis, uh, they think the court and our constitutional debates are debates that are not about economics. But what Joey has just described so well, it seems to me, is the necessity of bringing economics into those debates. Um, so you're arguing in here, as I understand it, Willie, that that actually constitutional debates have to be debates about economics. Am I correct in that? You are. And and the historical part of the book, which is to say the <clears throat> first two-thirds or so, <clears throat> show how not only that they must be because you can't sort of sustain political equality without attending to social and economic equality and the distribution of of wealth, power, and opportunity in social and economic life. Not only that you can't, but that, that, that we never did. That for all the great cases of the Marshall Court, with a handful of exceptions, the great cases of the Tawny Court, the, all the way up through the New Deal, that's what the justices were doing, and quite self-consciously so. They were saying the Constitution speaks to our economic arrangements, and the disagreements were just what the Constitution has to say. But what you rightly said is 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 kind of the 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 default assumption, the taken for granted view these days is that when they're talking and fighting about the Constitution, the justices on the Supreme Court are not talking and fighting about economic measures or economic arrangements. Um, They do that, but in a much more technical sphere um, and with bodies of law that are most emphatically not constitutional. That's something new and unusual in the broad arc of American history. Is this then an argument that we should maybe treat the law and these institutions as something a little less sacrosanct, as something that is that is more relevant to people's lives and and open to the changes and and dynamism of our society? Willie, we're certainly in in favor of of it. it, it, it I guess so. Sure, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought to put it that way, Jeremy. In terms of of sort of sacrosanct or not, we definitely are sort of joining hands with a tradition which for for which always treated the what's going on on the Supreme Court in a um, debunking and skeptical spirit um, and with a sharp eye for sort of who's 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 gaining in virtue of the court's interventions, and refusals to intervene. So, in that respect, yes, and that it and that it um, it matters for ordinary people to keep an eye on what the courts are doing and 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 push back through the avenues that are most often more available to them, which is to say, party politics, movement politics, 
um, and local politics. So that one reason back in the early Republic in the Jacksonian era, one reason that the Jacksonians um, stood for states' rights and localism was the sort of um, lamentable one that they, they thought they could safeguard slavery, those slaveholders among them. But another equally important reason for much of their constituents was, was instead the, the notion that local and state governments were more accessible to ordinary working people, or at least, again, ordinary working white men. Um, oh, sorry, I just wanted to jump in and add one one uh, piece of the please. story, which I think might be helpful here, which is the tradition that we're sketching in this book uh, was primarily not about what goes on in courts. I mean, as Willie says, many of the political leaders and activists who were articulating arguments in the tradition we're sketching were pretty skeptical of courts, but they also thought the constitution isn't just something for lawyers to interpret in courts. It's something that impels legislation to try to safeguard the values that need to be protected for the constitution to run. And so it's a constitution that had a lot to say about legislative duty, the duty of the political branches to enact things. And in that way, it's less of a kind of special, only for lawyers uh, in the special temples of the law kind of view of uh, what the Constitution is. It's resolutely anti-judicial supremacy. And so uh, even when the, the tradition sort of in some ways flipped from cherishing local and state government to seeing an urgent need for national action, the through line was that in any event, the Constitution belongs to the political branches to elaborate. And so when it went to a great emphasis on the need for strong legislation from Congress to counter the power of, of nation-spanning corporations, it was still the Constitution is a charter of legislative duties. In some ways, Jeremy, that may be the, the sort of in purely intellectual historical terms uh, one of the most important kind of discoveries of the book, of, of the research behind the book, is just how consistent both the phrase oligarchy and the idea of affirmative legislative duties run through so much of our constitutional history, which, again, is not about what the court says the Constitution means at all. It's interesting because in my reading, uh the, the presidents also were very important to your interpretation, right? I mean, the the role of Jackson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. And so, is it is it as Jackson himself argued? Uh, are you arguing as well that the that the president has a role as constitutional interpreter and constitutional fiduciary? Is is that is that how we should understand this too? Yeah, I think so. I think that while not embracing the sort of full on Jacksonian. Uh, departmentalist perspective on this matter. I do think we are at odds with the contemporary Supreme Court's view that the court is almost the first, last, and only interpreter of the Constitution. It's definitely our sense that that's an aberration in American life, and that for most of our history, even if the court is perhaps first among equals, there's certainly 
a uh, a big role for all of us to play and all of the parts of the government to play in fulfilling our uh, constitutional obligations. We're in a kind of interesting position with respect to this question because you know there were progressives a hundred years ago who were so convinced that the court was only doing damage, only protecting rich people's property and contract rights and striking down necessary legislation that helped the people and blocked oligarchy, uh, that really the best thing would be to just not have judicial review, just let legislators' judgments about what's constitutional stand. And we are not quite in that same place because we do think we need courts uh, but we do want to move us a few clicks back uh, toward having the other parts of the government uh, play independent interpretive roles in thinking about how we should understand our constitutional obligations. I thought a place where this um, distinction comes in very clearly, uh, where you situate yourself in a sense between two poles on this, were your chapters, your side-by-side chapters on the New Deal and the Great Society. Uh, in a sense, I think the New Deal is the is the manifestation of your argument, maybe in its clearest form, at least it seemed to me. But then, you're, even though the Great Society is, of course, in some ways inspired by the New Deal and has echoes of the New Deal in it, you also associate the Great Society with what you call this great forgetting of the tradition of these other branches being uh, intimately involved in the constitutional debates or constitutional politics, as you call them. So, so Willie, what's different between these moments, between the New Deal moment and the Great Society moment? A couple of things are different. The the tragic dimension of, of the story we tell about the relationship between the New Deal and the Great Society, and it's and, and, and it's not original to us as a sort of piece of political narrative. I think we have some important things to add as, 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 as a constitutional story, but the tragic element is the New Deal, by and large, was crafted to exclude black Americans. And that proved, at the end of the day, part of its undoing. Um, but the... The, so that the price that Roosevelt and and the more racially liberal or egalitarian New Dealers paid for the assent they needed from Dixiecrats right, in Congress was to craft New Deal legislation um, in ways that in, in that that excluded particularly black Southern labor. Um, and a second difference was they were, however, right. Deeply committed to right to the idea that in order to underpin to in, that uh, the idea that that working class America by which was meant white working class America had been left out of the running of the political economy as the nation you know became more and more of an sort of a, 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 an, an industrial nation and one dominated by large corporations and that in order to right get rid of what Brandeis called our financial oligarchs and, and Roosevelt, the economic royalists, it wasn't enough, right, to make sure that the, right, sort of Democratic Party sort of 
was attentive to the industrial working class and, and, and passed protective laws, it was also important to empower that working class in the economic sphere through very broad and robust protections for union organizing and the like, carefully excluding black Southern labor from that deal, but including, right, Northern black workers um, who got Right, who, who played an essential part in building the industrial unions that became the backbone of the New Deal. Fast forward to the Great Society. The Great Society right, came as right, the sort of what Joey described as the forgetting of political economy, the ascendancy of a more technocratic sort of Keynesian approach. The economic experts in the in the Great Society White House who um, who lost a grip on many of the ideas that they themselves, the older ones, had once entertained about what it meant to have a sort of full employment economy in, in the sense that it once meant for the sort of social democratic New Deal. And instead, we're interested in, in a much more right, impoverished notion, as it were, of, of, of things like employment. Nevertheless, the Great Society was riveted on including Black America in its great society, um, and in, in and but it did so with a with a different view of what it meant to include Black America, a view that was focused more on integration and fair employment, and less on sort of reconstructing and reforming what we call the political economy. Joey, I'm sure has something important to add. <laughs> well, I'll just say that. Um... You know, one of the things that's so appealing uh, to me about the the Great Society is it's the first time that our politics really centered a focus on the poor. The problem with the Great Society from the perspective of our uh, tradition that we're sketching in the book is that that was really as far as it went. There was no longer in the in the kind of war on poverty and in the great society's racial justice initiatives, there was not a an effort to ensure that there would be a broad distribution of jobs and opportunities for everybody to enter the middle class. And so you have this problem, this situation, which later conservative politicians were very eager to exploit and successfully did exploit, that you were suddenly telling uh, through civil rights legislation, you were suddenly telling, you know, unions that and and you know industrial workplaces that they had to suddenly, you know, integrate racially. They had to have black workers in them, which was good. But you were saying that at the same time, as those uh, industrial settings were kind of beginning to fall apart, and the middle class jobs that had sustained the mid twentieth century middle class in America were disappearing with deindustrialization and nothing was taking their place. And so you have this, this acute problem that in retrospect is obvious, but that couldn't be seen very well at the time, that because the great society liberals were not focused on the big political economy questions that the New Dealers had focused on, that they could, they could try to make jobs more inclusive or they could try to help the poor, but they were going to end up with a lot of embittered uh, white workers who were uh, not having the economic prospects that the generation before uh, had had. And politically, this turned out to be pretty disastrous for the Great Society Coalition. 
Absolutely, though, of course, not always recognized at the time. Um, I, I guess to me, and this is not an original interpretation that I have, but it does seem that one of the costs of the uh, somewhat heroic Warren Court and the civil rights decisions, uh, obviously Brown v. Board, among many others, was that it, it maybe over-elevated the court uh, as, a, as an actor. Um, and so this is not an argument against those decisions, but it's an argument about the ways in which perhaps what you're criticizing, right, this um, making of the court into this oracular, um, godlike uh, interpretive space for the Constitution that no one else can touch, uh, that that in some ways is 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 an outgrowth of the of the Warren Court, is it not? It's both the I think they're they're it's both the Warren Court and the 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 backlash on the part of white Southern racist politicians and and the folks whom they could mobilize against the court, which pushed liberals. Um, into a defense of the court's supreme authority as the one and only legitimate interpreter, right? It was, it was the, the ways in which the, the Warren court's enemies grabbed hold of old traditions of, from the left of criticizing the court for its interventions on behalf of, of, uh, you know the oligarchs and the and the and the well-heeled; those became the weaponry of um, Southern white reactionaries and racists. So that, to some extent, at least liberals were boxed into defending the court's authority. They they went overboard in the sense that they 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 didn't um, hold on to uh, an older tradition that was skeptical of what courts. Couldn't, couldn't do. Courts are great at stopping things, at saying no. And they were great at laying down principles of equal justice and integration, which the civil rights movement, right, through mobilizing, you know, on, in spaces far from the courtrooms, helped the, to push through Congress. And just one other note about, about that moment of what we're calling a great forgetting and what you mentioned, Jeremy, is saying, people couldn't see at the time. People like Dr. King, Paulie Murray, Bayard Rustin, those right, black thinkers and, and activists were very clear about the thinness of what, that, what King called fair employment without full employment, about the need for right, a deeper kind of economic reconstruction um, in order to sustain the kind of political economy he understood full, full well, which is why right, he marched with right, unions and, and yes. sanitation workers and the like and turned to a poor people's campaign that was meant to be right, both about economic and, and racial justice. So, so he saw what was coming and, and the perils for black America of a one-sided notion of, of civil rights that didn't include economic citizenship. Absolutely. And, and I think the scholarship on the civil rights movement, particularly the scholarship of the last 20 years, has, has certainly uh, underlined that point that you, that you made so well. Um, so, so, Joey, if we're living in a sense then with the um, consequences of uh, the over 
emphasis on the role of the court and the mobilized pushback against uh, the grassroots politics and the political economic activism that Willie was just describing so well. Uh, your, your, your final chapter, your longest chapter, I think, in the book is about what we're supposed to do now, what we should, what we should do now. Uh, so, so sketch out uh, the, the answer to Lenin's question, right? What do we do now? So I think part of it, the part that connects most directly to what we've just been describing is liberals are still living in this strange kind of Warren court inflected posture of defense of the court. And this is understandable in some ways because, you know, conservatives are still busily attacking the court, even though conservatives have dominated the court for many decades. Conservatives still are kind of um, dining out on what was wrong with the liberal decisions of the Warren court. And so liberals are still saying we should defend precedent, don't overturn things so much. Um, we think that's not quite the right posture for the current and next generation of progressives to take toward uh, the Supreme Court. This court is a radical court. It's quite similar to courts we've seen before 100 years ago. Uh, it's writing into doc constitutional doctrine a variety of principles that protect property, contract, and those sort of old uh, conservative values in new doctrinal forms against egalitarian legislation. So we need to begin to turn the battleship of progressive attitudes toward the court uh, in a different direction. We need to think about political confrontation with a hostile court in the hope that as with FDR's famous but often misunderstood court packing plan, a threat's by the political branches to push in a different direction might hopefully cause the court to back down or think a little differently about what its um, decisions that are so far out of step with what the American people want would mean for the court's own continued kind of power and role in American life. So I think we need to have some check and balance against the court. Um, and so the first thing I would say to, to your big question is we need uh, legislatures as they craft a lot of the different kinds of egalitarian pieces of legislation that we think are needed, which range from uh, antitrust and corporate law to wealth taxes to you know, we have, we have a, a wide variety of areas where we can see future constitutional confrontations between progressive legislation and a hostile court. And in anticipation of that, progressives need to think about the relationship between politics and the court in a more confrontational way. We need to stop just sort of accepting this, this obviously untrue, but for some people kind of comforting mythology in that says the court is a kind of neutral umpire rather than a body engaged in its own specialized form of um, of constitutional politics. And you have some startling, at least they were startling to me, proposals in this chapter, including changing the jurisdiction of the court, writing into legislation, it seemed to me the way you described it, provisions for what would happen if the legislation were overturned. Uh, Willie, what would this look like in practice? Because this seems to me actually quite different 
from FDR's efforts to simply change the number of judges, but that was something that had happened throughout the 19th century as well. This this seems to go beyond that. It, in some ways, it, it it's it actually in some ways um, stops short of the idea that you simply pack the court with um, progressives. It it although we're we are not shy of of seeing that as 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 one part of a sort of um, arsenal of of measures to to put on the table the idea is that often right say with respect to um obamacare and the the courts having throttled what was in some ways the the most important part of obamacare which was not the individual mandate but rather the expansion of medicaid so it included really sort of all Americans sort of near, you know, just above or, or, or below the poverty line, a sort of a huge swath of Americans, a score of millions of whom are, are, are uninsured thanks to what the court did. Um, if instead of simply saying um, that if the states want to, right, enjoy, right, a huge federal contribution to a vast expansion of Medicaid and good public medicine, they, they, they have to um, sign up for the, this, this expansion or they will right, lose the stingy and mean-spirited Medicaid they currently have. And the court said you can't condition the enjoyment of this expansion of Medicaid, right, um, on on uh, on staying on with the with 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 the whole gamut. You can't condition keeping the old Medicaid on joining onto the new, right? And having struck that, many states, including our own Texas, stuck with the stingy mean part, um, having been invited to do that and 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 said no, and were allowed by you know this intervention by the court to refuse this. But instead, the bill could have been crafted so that. If the court strikes down this arrangement, which gives the states right some some greater measure of autonomy, then there will simply be a nationalization of Medicaid, and 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 there are several other right, examples of how you can kind of condition various measures that are sort of somewhat exposed to some new move on the court's part, on um, and saying if you strike this down, here's another you know more centralized in some ways, but also more insulated from, from sort of the obvious next move by the court. So that the idea is to have backup plans with respect to many measures, which are less, less easy for the court to strike down. And I, I'm betraying my ignorance here, Willie, even though I'm a historian. Have we ever done this before? It's not totally unheard of. In fact, you'll see that there are, there are some proposals floating around at various different eras of conflict between the representative branches and the court. Today, uh, actually, you'll you'll sometimes see a jurisdiction, it's unusual, enact, say, a redistricting map that they know is going to get struck down, and there'll be a backup provision in there saying, uh, here's the map in case you strike down the first one. But yeah, it's very, very rare to see this even proposed, let alone enacted. But I think this is a story of 
we think it's important for there to be a wide range of tools that legislatures can bring to bear in conflict with the courts so that it's not just we have to either expand the court and pack it or do nothing. There need to be some more options in there. And uh, Congress has before exercised some of the other options that are part of that uh, spectrum, including limiting in some limited respects the jurisdiction of the uh, courts. Or when the court gets to review a measure, you know, so that there are ways of deferring when a measure is is ripe for judicial review. Mm-hmm. And obviously the court can overstep those those restraints and that, you know, can in, intensify the battle. And 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 so it, it's sort of a dynamic that that these kinds of measures would sort of enable to unfold. So this is super helpful and really widening, I think, the way we, we talk about these issues. You're, you're broadening and deepening our discourse. The final question I wanted to ask was just to apply this to, I know, a topic you, you've both thought a lot about and many Americans are thinking about now, um, the, the legacy of Roe v. Wade, which clearly is is being uh, torn down now and uh, by the court. Uh, chipped away at it, more than chipped away at it, it seems to me. What is your advice, obviously without any guarantee of success, but what is your advice to those who I think represent a majority in much of the country who want to see some protection for um, a, woman's, a woman's, woman's right to choose and don't want to accept the court's rulings? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you suggest they do in your constitutional politics? So first, I would say legislate. There's no reason that rights have to come from the court. We can, through legislation at the federal level, which of course is difficult to pass right now, but also through the states in the states that have majorities that favor abortion rights, you can enact legislation to protect these rights. One of the insights that I think you might bring to this question from our book is also to look at abortion rights, not only through the lens of kind of the individual personal uh, autonomy uh, rights aspect, even the sex equality aspect of the right, but also to think about it in political economy terms, because there is a reason why the people who have the hardest time obtaining an abortion in a state like Texas are always poor women. And that's because the anti-abortion forces have been very good at understanding how to make it more economically difficult for clinics to continue so that it's harder for poor women to get to where they need to go. So legislate, uh, but don't just legislate a right. Also think about the political economy, think about the funding, think about who can go where to obtain an abortion and try to build, uh, this is drawing on uh, on Carrie Franklin's work, try to think about building an infrastructure of provision that makes it possible for uh, abortion to not become basically uh, a right of of people wealthy enough to travel uh, to other states. Try to find ways to make it as accessible as possible in the economic uh they try to make it as accessible as possible to people whose economic means may be as big of a barrier as uh, anti-abortion laws. 
Willie, I want to give you the last word, and I, I, I anticipated a little, a little bit what Joey was going to say, and why isn't the solution, because I'm sure this is not your, your advice, why isn't the solution then just to support the proposals like the Missouri law that would actually prohibit people from traveling out of state, therein eliminating the oligarchic advantage that those who can afford travel would have? Obviously, that's not going to be your advice on this. What, how would you respond to that? Run that by me again, not, not, not to... So as I understand it, right, states like Missouri are proposing laws mm-hmm. that would actually prohibit people from doing what Joey said uh, oligarchs do, right, which is to uh, avoid the laws they don't like in their own state that they're imposing on poor people by traveling out of state. Uh, and Missouri would, I think, penalize, correct me if I'm wrong, Joey, right, they're trying to penalize people who would try to do that in the name of anti-oligarchy saying we're not going to let anyone travel out of the state so everyone is subjected. That, in a sense, it further impacts. So in other words, it's, it's, at least it's being dressed up as, however cynically, as a leveling move so I that so. even even the, the well-heeled Missouri. To be clear, I'm not sure it's even being dressed up that way. I, mean, I would have thought it was aimed fairly you know, transparently against the poor women who would seek to get an abortion out of state and those who would help them. But it would certainly have both effects. One of the one of the sort of most you know I think robust constitutional rights is the right to travel and and the and the right to sort of both travel and engage in commerce, including you know buying or taking advantage of medical services across the country. That's one that 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 even this court I suspect would have a hard time spurning. Um, so I must say the, 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 the sort of freedom to move about goes, you know, you know, has one of its kind of, you know, anchors in Blackstone and, and, and even this court, even, even this court loves to quote Blackstone, uh, often to conservative purposes, but in this case, not. Um, so, so I must say, I'm happy to take that case even to this court. Uh, the <laughs> idea that you could you could prevent someone from traveling, but Joey Joey may may see a more you know cynical move awaiting you know from this court. I don't know. No, I, I totally agree. I think this actually illustrates well. I know this is the last, last, last word, but I it, I think it illustrates well the interesting dynamic where we as liberal and progressive you know, uh, thinkers today are both interested in confronting the court and sometimes we have to rely on it and we have reason to think that there might still be times where we can. I think that might be one of them. That's that's a great way of thinking about it. Zachary, uh, as we close, as a young person who clearly thinks a lot about these issues and is concerned about oligarchy and inequality, um, Does this argument about a more confrontational and less reverential approach to the court, which in some ways runs against the way civics is taught, and I think the way history is taught in high schools, does this resonate with you and and other young people? I think it certainly does. I think the the key point that I think will resonate with a lot of young people is this point that our democracy, our institutions, and even the law is 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 living. It can change, and 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 we can change it, uh, and it has changed. And I think part of the point here is that that we 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 can't simply rely on on 
precedent, both legal and 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 societal, uh, to to make these these decisions moving forward. That we actually have to have an honest, good faith conversation about what is important to us as a society, right? And one that is is rooted in political economy, indeed. Uh, this has been so enlightening, and uh, it, I think, captures uh, why this book is so important. I want to uh, reemphasize for all of our listeners that this, this is a book that you should read, and it's a book that's uh, not only intellectually rigorous, but really is a, is a fundamental story of our society, and I think resonates with so many of the issues. The final chapter talks about affirmative action, talks about healthcare, talks about a range of issues, and connects them to this important history and argument. Uh, the title is The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution uh, by our terrific guests, uh, Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath. Uh, thank you, Joey and Willie, for joining us today. Thank you, too. And thank you to Zachary for his poem, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio. And the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.